Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Dear God. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On the morning of September 11, 2001, radical Islamic terrorists launched a series of coordinated attacks against our country. Four commercial airliners were hijacked from airports in the Northeast and flown into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a field in Pennsylvania. In less than two hours, the Twin Towers had fallen. The Pentagon was severely damaged and nearly 3,000 people had lost their lives. Our nation was stunned and angry and hurting. That day, President George W. Bush, uh, who had spent the day doing crisis management from Air Force One, uh, went to great lengths to get back to the Oval Office in Washington, D.C. so that he could address our country. And he did that evening on Tuesday night September 11, 2001, millions tuned in to hear what President George Bush would say, and so he started his speech like this. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life and our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices. They were secretaries, businessmen, and businesswomen, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings, fires burning, and huge structures collapsing have filled us with disbelief terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. And then the president ended his address after sharing a few more comments. He ended it like this. Tonight, I ask for your prayers for all who grieve, for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us has spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We will all face some kind of evil in our lifetime, and we all most certainly will face death. But in times like this, unbelievers and believers throughout the centuries have found comfort in one of the most popular passages of Scripture in the entire Bible, Psalm 23. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Psalm 23 as we continue our series, uh, Dear God, and our study of the Psalms. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you so that you can follow along with us. Our theme verse for this series on prayer comes from Psalm 34, verse 4, and uh, I have it on your sermon note handout, but also on the screen behind me, 
Let's say it out loud together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The book of Psalms is, first of all, a hymn book. It contains 150 songs from a handful of authors that were used in Hebrew worship services. The title of this Bible book in the original language literally is Book of Praises. <coughs> However, the Psalter is more than a hymn book. It's also a prayer journal. And in particular, book one that we're focusing on in this series is a prayer journal for King David. It gives us snapshots of his walk with the Lord throughout his lifetime and we, we get to peek in on certain days in his life or seasons and how he's feeling and what he's thinking about and how he's interacting with the Lord. The Psalms, especially Book 1, is a personal prayer journal for some of the godliest people that ever walked on the earth. It contains a multitude of personal prayers ranging from praise to thanksgiving to repentance to rescue and desperation to healing. David's next entry here in chapter 23 is a prayer for comfort because he's afraid. Thus, our big idea for today is this. The Lord is present even when we don't see him, feel him, or believe him. The Lord is present even when we don't see him, feel him, or believe him. Although David doesn't mention where he was exactly when he wrote this. It's not mentioned in the superscript like it is sometimes. Some have suggested that he wrote this in his later years while running from his son Absalom. Absalom, you might remember from 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 19, led a coup to overthrow his father from the throne and to take over the throne of Israel. You might remember mentioning earlier in this series that there are six types of psalms uh, that are categorized, or there's kind of six categories of psalms, excuse me, and uh, this particular uh, psalm, 23, is classified as a thanksgiving psalm because it both praises God's character and praises his work that he has done or does in the life of believers. Over the centuries, Psalm 23 has comforted Patients that are on their deathbed in the hospital. Parents that have had to bury one of their children. Soldiers marching out on the battlefield. Missionaries imprisoned in foreign countries and much more. If Psalm 13 answers the question, how do I pray when I'm waiting on God? And if Psalm 22 is about what to do when you've waited so long that you feel forgotten, then... Psalm 23 answers the question, where is God when I need him? Where is he when I need him? And so with that, if you would, look at your Bibles with me. And uh, I'm going to read the first four verses, Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and staff, they comfort me. 
Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that we can glean from this passage, and that is that the Lord is a paternal shepherd for Christ's followers. He is a paternal shepherd for Christ's followers. The psalm neatly breaks down into two sections or movements. The first four verses describe the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. Similar to Psalm 22, Psalm 23 also has messianic tones in it. And it foretells of a Savior that will care for his people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. For example, uh, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verse 14. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. And Peter called Jesus the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5. In this genius hymn that David writes, he draws upon his experiences as a shepherd in his youthful days tending his father's flocks, and he paints a picture of how the Lord cares for his children and his sheep. Notice in verse 1 it says, The Lord. You might remember me mentioning in previous messages in this series that we gained some insight on, on what David's thinking and how he's feeling by the particular name of the Lord that he uses. And the Lord has multiple names, each describing a different facet of his character. Most Bible translations show Lord in capital letters. There's a reason for this. It's not always the case, but in in every place where the Lord's name comes up. But in this particular case, in the original Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. It's his his name that means literally self-existing or self-sufficient one. It means that no one created him, And he is dependent on no one. It's also the name that God used when he made a covenant with the people of Israel to be their protector and provider. This is significant because thus David is saying in verse 1, The Lord, my covenant-making, promise-keeping God, is my shepherd. I think it's a subtle way for David to say, Lord... (laughs) Don't forget, you're a covenant-making, promise-keeping God, and I need you to keep your covenant and, make, and keep your promises right now because I'm afraid. Notice in verse 1 also, the Lord is my shepherd. I have that underlined in my Bible. You might want to underline it in yours as well. <laughs> Notice it's a first-person possessive pronoun. David is reminding himself and the Lord that God made his covenant both with the corporate congregation, but also with individual believers. And then we have the word shepherd. Shepherds in the ancient Near East formed an inseparable bond with their sheep, in large part because sheep were absolutely helpless, senseless, and defenseless. Their master was intimately aware of each sheep's personality, tendencies, physical marks, injuries, and scars. Sheep were slow to trust shepherds, but once they did, they trusted the shepherd exclusively. So much so that if two flocks intermingled at a watering hole, 
Once a shepherd would utter a guttural sound, he, every shepherd had a unique call that he would use for his flock. The flock would, even if they were mixed in together, his flock would rise up and then follow him. Wherever he led. And the flocks would just separate. David writes, Because the Lord is my shepherd... Notice in verse 1, I shall not want. These four words reveal something profound, I think, about us and the Lord. About us, they reveal that we are prone to want things more than the Lord. And about the Lord, they reveal that he wants to lead us to a place where we want nothing else but him. That's what makes these four words, I think, the most difficult words in the entire Bible for American Christians to utter. I shall not want. Maybe this is because we live in a culture where we are surrounded and bombarded with So many advertising and marketing messages that are designed to make us want more. Designed to create in our capitalistic society a a discontent so we will spend more money to be content and then, of course, never find contentment in spending the money. There once was a little girl who heard a Sunday school lesson taught at her church on Psalm 23 Verse 1, and after class she could be heard quoting the verse in her own translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I've got all I want. I wonder what would change in our church if every member could say from the sincerity of their heart, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I wonder how our worship attendance would change. I wonder when people show up for worship would change. I wonder how our giving would change, how our serving and our small group attendance would change if if every member could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, it could be said that if there is anything else that you want more than Jesus then you've wandered from the shepherd. And if you want what Jesus can do for you more than Jesus, then you still have wandered from the shepherd. So it begs the question that I have to ask, what do you want? Could it be that the very thing he is doing in your life right now is meant to purge your heart of all the other wants so that you only desire him. You see, because I've learned in my own life, sometimes the Lord puts us in situations where Jesus is all that we have so that we can learn that Jesus is all we really need. And it's my encouragement to you If you're not there yet, get there as quickly as you can on your own 
before he puts you in a situation where Jesus is all you have. David, in Psalm 23, then goes on to list a few more benefits of having Christ as your shepherd. Here's letter A on your outline. David says he provides. He provides. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You need to know that when the Bible calls us sheep, it is in no way meant to be a compliment. It is not meant to convey that we are cute, cuddly, little stuffed animals. In his popular book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, author Philip Keller shares some profound insights from his years of raising sheep. Keller explains how more than any other class of livestock, sheep require endless attention and meticulous care. That means we're high-maintenance people. He goes on to describe how their very makeup makes it nearly impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. First, due to their timidity, they must be free from all fear. Second, because of their sociability, they must be free from friction with with other sheep. Thirdly, they must be free from flies or parasites in order to relax. And finally, they will not lie down unless they are free of hunger. The spiritual parallel is simple. Uh, Anyone who walks with the Lord and chews on his word will not lack for spiritual nourishment. This is one of the many reasons why the scriptures are called a food for the soul in Hebrews chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 2. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. He provides for my soul. Also, David says, he leads me beside still waters. Philip Keller goes on to explain in his book on sheep and shepherding that sheep quench their thirst in one of three ways. They lick up the morning dew off the grass, they drink water from deep wells, or they drink it from flowing streams. I even read in another uh, uh, resource as I was doing my research that sometimes shepherds would create makeshift dams to slow down the flow of the water because if it, it was too fast, the sheep wouldn't drink it. The spiritual parallel, again, is simple. Anyone who walks with the Lord will never thirst again. Jesus told the Samaritan woman this at the well in John chapter 4, and he calls the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer like streams of living water in John chapter 7. So he provides. Next, here's letter B, he guides. He guides. David says he restores my soul. Some translations say he renews my strength. The idea here is a, it's, a, it's a play on how real-life shepherds actually monitor the stamina of their flocks. When sheep become tired from traversing the uh, rugged terrain of the Middle East, shepherds will find a watering hole for the flock and set up camp for the night. Isaiah 40 says that the Lord does something similar for us. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. But he also guides us on the right paths we should take. Notice in verse 3, David also said he leads in paths of righteousness. 
if an adventurous sheep um, forms a habit of straying, the shepherd would break its leg and then nurse it back to health and feed it so that the sheep would learn to be dependent on the shepherd. And so that particular sheep would no longer stray from the safety of the flock. In a similar sense, the Lord tries to lead us in the right path, in His will, and to make good choices. And if we don't listen or follow His leadership, sometimes He has to break our leg to humble us. Sometimes He has to cripple us for our own good. Notice also, David says, it's in verse 3, for his name's sake. Because if we claim to know Christ, we have to live a certain way. And what we do and what we say reflects on him. And the Lord cares about that. That matters to him. So he provides and he guides. He also, letter C, protects. He protects. Verse 4 That famous turn of phrase, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In real life, shepherds had to lead their flocks through ravines and gullies where the steep and narrow slopes kept out the sunlight. The reference to death is probably superlative language uh, for a, a very deep shadow or deep darkness. The spiritual parallel, obviously, is that valleys represent the dark, uncertain seasons of our lives, where we don't know where the Lord is leading, and we are not sure if he's there. Sometimes we are the ones that put ourselves in the valley, and sometimes it's the Lord that leads us to the valley, but he will always lead us out. He will always lead us out if we follow him. Valleys have a way of refocusing our priorities, purging our pride and heightening our sensitivity to the Lord's presence. In valleys, a lot of the noise is removed from everyday life, and we tend to pray like we've never prayed before. Notice in verse 4, he also says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was a club that was kept on the shepherd's belt, used for fending off predators. The staff was a well-known crook that we've all seen that was used to grab sheep and keep them in line or from wandering off. It's a, a parable of the Lord's discipline that he sometimes exercises on us for our own good. But the Lord's skillful use of these two tools was a comfort to David. And certainly David was familiar with them. A club and a staff. One a weapon. One for caring for the flock and protecting them from themselves. Perhaps you're like me and when you read this, Maybe you find yourself thinking, well, Lord, if you, if you love me, then, then why are you making me walk through this valley? <laughs> but the Lord says through this passage and others, because I love you, I will get you through. And because of the valley, 
you will be more thankful for the mountaintops. Now, it's important, I think, that we keep God's promise of protection in proper perspective. This is a concept that I have wrestled with, and perhaps you have too. Well, if God promises to protect us, then how come we still suffer from pain, or others are allowed to sin against us, or believers are persecuted? How do we reconcile that? We need to make sure that we apply our knowledge of God's sovereignty to our fears so that we are fearless. Obviously, David was going through a dark and difficult time. So he wasn't protected in the sense of his comfort protected. But this is what British missionary Henry Martin uh, thought about when he left his family in the 18th century. He left friends and a potential wife, a woman he was courting that he loved, and a comfortable life. He left it all behind so that he could follow the Lord's calling to go to India to be a missionary. And when some of Henry Martin's friends tried to talk him out of leaving all his good life and friends and family behind in Britain, like, are you sure you want to go to India? Why, Why would you do this? I mean, you could die down there. I mean, there's like people killing Christians down there. And Martin said this famous quote that he's well known for, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. Now, I think about Henry Martin's wise quote on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think we need to uh, consider what Elizabeth Elliot said, of course, well-known missionary herself who suffered for the Lord. She says this, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. So we need to remember both. He's not going to take us home until our work for him here on earth is done, But at the same time, his protection is limited to things that um, will not make us like Jesus. And if if he deems that it will make us more like Christ, then he'll allow it to happen. So both these truths have to be held in tension by us. Well, it's been a long time since I've given an application, so this seems like a good time. Why don't we uh, talk about application? What do we do since we want to be doers of the word? And we know from James 1 that when we do God's word, we're promised to be blessed. Well, I have two for you, two quick applications. The first is submit to the good shepherd. Submit to the good shepherd. In order for the Lord to be your good shepherd... You must stop trying to be your own shepherd. You must become his sheep. Now this is first of all done through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Or it can be done by recommitting your life to Christ. If that's a decision you've already made. But don't wait until he breaks your leg. And makes you lie down in a green pasture. So submit to the good shepherd and stay with the flock. Next, second application that comes to mind is to memorize Psalm 23. It's not very long. It's six verses. And this compared also along with the beautiful language that she used and the encouragement that's in this psalm, it's the reason why thousands of saints throughout the centuries have memorized this psalm. 
They have fought off fear and experienced God's presence by praying this psalm out loud in dark times. Some even have done it without a printed Bible in their hands because they didn't have one. And so they had memorized it so they could recite it to themselves in prison or maybe when they were about to be killed for the faith. Memorizing scripture is a spiritual discipline that is not as hard as it seems, and it will transform your walk with the Lord. So learn Psalm 23, and you'll never forget that the Lord is with you even when you don't see him, when you don't feel him, or believe him. Look back at the text with me at the final couple verses here, verse, verses 5 and 6. David says, uh, there's a shift here, a change in thought. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Here's number two in your outline. The Lord is an extravagant host for Christ followers. He's a paternal shepherd first, but then he's also an extravagant host. The second movement here in Psalm 23 describes the relationship between the host, capital H, and his guest at a lavish banquet. Some scholars have interpreted this as referring to the spiritual blessings the believer gets to enjoy in the present tense, while others have interpreted this as a description of the blessings that believers will enjoy when they get to heaven and they're with the Lord. Either seems appropriate, regardless. These two remaining verses are a metaphor for the extravagant generosity the Lord shows to those who have received Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so here's letter A and B on your outline. He honors us. He honors us. Note, in the presence of my enemies. I found that a little bit humorous in my studies this week because David is in essence saying, see, it's his enemies that have him feeling afraid. That's why he's praying the psalm. But not only is the table symbolic of the Lord's generous provision in our lives, but David is saying the Lord sets up a nice banquet buffet for me in front of my enemies and they don't get any of the food. They just get to watch. What vindication that is for David. The enemies that mocked him for his faith, and we see it recorded in some of the earlier chapters of the Psalms where they taunted David and said, where is your God? And ha ha ha, and why don't you call him now? And David says, I'm going to have a buffet dinner banquet with the best food ever, five star times ten, and my enemies, they're going to be sitting on the outside hoping they get some scraps. I get to dine with the king of the universe, and they don't get to join in. Now, if you're like me, again, we tend to think, well, Lord, if you love me, then why don't you make all my enemies like me? I mean, I want everybody to like me. But the Lord says, because I love you, I will bless you in front of your enemies. I think it's a reminder, too, that you can live a godly life and not be liked by everybody. 
People like David and Paul and the apostles and Jesus himself had folks that wanted to kill him. So it's not possible to live a life where everybody likes you. Notice in verse 5, he says, you anoint my head with oil. This is, uh, in, this is very intentional language because back in those days in the ancient Near East, um, it was customary when a host or a wealthy person was going to have a large banquet and throw a big party, it was very customary for the host to greet guests at the door with exotic perfumes mixed with olive oil. Bottles were broken and perfumes were lavishly poured on the guests so that the oil and the perfume ran down their hair and onto their robes, leaving a lingering pleasant odor throughout the room as the meal was enjoyed. David says, my cup overflows. He's describing the Lord as a servant or a waiter that hovers over him, filling his cup just after he takes a drink of the wine. And, 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 and he doesn't even get his glass halfway empty, and he, it just filled up again. It describes a God who loves to give and gives more than we deserve. So he honors us when we don't deserve it. Next, look at verse uh, 6. He blesses us. Letter B, he blesses us. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. As David reflected on his life, he, he knew. Now, keep in mind, he's writing this later in his life. So he's looking back. He's lived a lot of years. He's been king. He's most likely been overthrown by his son Absalom and running for his life again. And he's reflecting, and he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. He seems to know that all things will work together for good, even the things that are happening to him at this very moment. And he seems to know that the Lord will show him mercy for his sins. Even if it was difficult to believe while walking through this valley of the shadow of death, David knew that when he was with the Lord someday in eternity, he would be able to look back in hindsight on his life and say, surely the Lord was good to me. The Lord was good to me. So, application for these last two verses. Be a grateful guest. Be a grateful guest. It's imperative that we don't see ourselves as somehow deserving such a banquet. You see, none of us have a spiritual heritage or inheritance or resume that qualifies us for such an event. Instead, we are the homeless bums that Jesus invites in off the street. We are, we are like, according to the scriptures, we are, we are described as the annoying, unattractive, weird, and uninteresting relatives that are warmly welcomed for Christmas dinner. <laughs> Not because you're looking forward to spending Christmas with them, but, well, they're family. What else are we going to do? And you see, when you think of yourself like that, like, I don't deserve this treatment like David did, it gives you perspective. You, you have humility. I, I don't deserve anything that God gives me. I don't deserve his blessings. I'm not entitled to anything because of how I've treated him. So be a grateful guest. Don't, you don't have refrigerator rights yet in the Lord's house. 
so. The Lord is an extravagant host for Christ's followers. He honors and he blesses, and thus we should be grateful. Are you trusting the Lord in the midst of your valley? Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, he promises to be with you even when you don't see him, even when you don't feel him, or when you don't believe he's there. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I'd love to introduce you to him at the conclusion of this service so that you have a shepherd who will be with you. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I, I know for a fact that there are some here in our church that are going through deep, dark, long valleys. Father, would you please show them in demonstrable, noticeable ways that you are with them, that you are working, that you have not forgotten them. Lord, would you please make this time in the valley profitable where they would become so in tuned to your spirit and so addicted to your presence that they never want to lose it again in their life. Lord, I know there are others here that haven't gone through a valley yet. I know I was a believer for many years before I experienced the valley of the shadow of death. And so it was hard for me to relate or to understand because I didn't have that experiential knowledge. And so, Lord, for those that are in that situation, I just want to pray that you would prepare them. That somehow, by your Spirit, you would enable them to, to understand what David is saying and what David is describing so that when it comes, and it will, their faith doesn't go into a tailspin. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for our church. You know, I, I think about our church every day and every night. Even when I'm supposed to be taking a day off, I worry about our church. I think about and pray for people and what they're going through and their walk with you. And Lord, please, if there is anybody that's here today or not here today that wants something more than they want Jesus, please do something in their heart so they would only want Jesus. Father, please, we, we want to be a church that, that pleases you, but we recognize in our depravity, in our desperation, that in our brokenness, that we can't even want you or love you or abide in you without your Spirit's help. So Lord, please help us. Do surgery on our hearts. Purge the things from our hearts. Show us what they are and help us get rid of them so that only Jesus remains. Only Jesus is on the throne. If there are distractions in our lives keeping us from loving only Jesus the shepherd, 
remove them or show us how to remove them. We love you, Lord, and we ask for your favor upon us. Make your face shine upon us, Lord. As, as David wrote in Psalm 67, make your face shine upon us, Lord, so that your name may be known throughout the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.